You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. You likely heard in medical news over the past several days, this report claimed that teenagers' brains aged faster during the pandemic. Man, I have no idea how they did the math on this. They say it was the stress of the pandemic, the lockdowns permanently... um, age the brains like about three years or so dr brandon brock my guest again okay dr b do you understand how something like this is measured how can they come to a conclusion say okay three years that's how much teenager brains age as a result of the shutdown of the pandemic no association with schoolmates not going to prom not doing the whole homecoming thing all that stuff how did they arrive at that number or could they arrive at that number do you know and really interesting, and, and, and this is from what I understand from the preliminary uh, information from the studies that they've done, is there's some researchers that have been doing some research on anxiety and depression on children, and they were doing this before the pandemic. You know, they were doing imaging every couple of years. Okay. And so they were doing some before the pandemic, and then another set came along after the pandemic or, you know, after some had been infected and stuff like that, and they realized that the images all of a sudden started to change significantly in the cohort that had been infected. And so they started comparing the before and after images and they noticed significant changes that they didn't expect. It didn't follow the same linear, you know, progression that they were seeing just of a normal kid. Okay. And is this in any way reversible or is is this some type of uh, very negative damage or, or you know how kids are? They're resilient. Oh, they'll bounce back. Well, after looking at this and then kind of really comparing it to some other papers, it's, the interesting thing is the part of the brain that matured was the amygdala, which is a long word for the area that kind of perceives fear and negativity. But the part of the brain that didn't develop is the frontal lobe, which gives you executive function and higher capacity to live. Okay. So in other words, now now we see people whose brains have matured to the point to where they have the amygdala anxiety and they don't have the frontal lobe to inhibit that depression. And so we see this as people age. You know, there's things that happen. You go through life that causes stress. The part of the brain that perceives the stress gets more advanced and developed. And then the areas that give you the higher function, like being social, you know, going out and figuring out how to do things on your own. All the things that we didn't do during COVID, they didn't develop. And so what we're kind of seeing is what looks like an older person that's been under stress, Mm. but their frontal lobes may get dinged a little bit because they've lost a little bit of function. From North Texas, uh, part of Carpathia Collaborative, Chief Clinician, Dr. Brandon Brock, our guest again here on the Sergio Show, and we're talking about uh, teenagers aging about three years or so uh, as a result of the pandemic, all the stress and the lack of um, socializing with their friends and everything that they were denied during that shutdown, the forced shutdown, the kids not allowed to go to school. One of the local business partners and clinics that we work here in South Texas, Doc, about, um, like, towards the end, like, sometime last year, I recall, man, he was on me on a regular basis, Serge. We got to talk about mental illness in kids. 
mental illness in kids. Yeah. I am getting swamped right now. Okay, so how do you attack this? How, how do you provide therapy for these, either parents recognizing it or your colleagues in, in medicine uh, and, and, so, uh, and mental health? How do you tackle this? What can you do to you know, straighten out these kids that are slightly warped? Well, and the, your your colleague, your friend that was saying that is 100% right. I mean, in our practices, you got to understand it's all changed. Now you just have to assume that just about everybody is coming in with a little bit of anxiety that normally wouldn't have been there or it's higher than it was. And so we're all scratching our heads making these observations. And then you got these researchers that are starting to come up with at least some theories of why this is going on. And believe me, there's going to have to be a lot more research done on this, but it is very tricky. Number one, the mental health care system is getting crammed and, you know, there has to be a system to pay for this because some insurance companies have significant limitations on mental health care. And this is creating some situations where kids are failing to thrive and they're not getting what they need because nobody will acknowledge it or recognize it as it possibly being connected. And so it's creating a giant snafu effect to where we're going to have a generation, not just of kids, but then also parents that are having to deal with kids and help them through this it's a big circle and you know this is the crisis that we knew we would have to start dealing with and thank goodness there's some people that are doing research it's these stress hormones that make some areas develop and some areas dilapidate and we're all very concerned about it the answer of what we do about it at this point is we don't really know yet oh my goodness <laughs> i was thinking like how much how many group sessions or counseling one-on-one sessions would you need? We don't know what's reversible. We don't know what, what's permanent. We, it seems like it's aged three years. It's almost like you jumped forward in time, and we don't know that that is really appropriate for that age of development. Um, and we don't know what it's going to turn into, and we don't know what it's going to look like 10 years down Ooh, the road. Oh. And so, therefore, there's still a lot of gray boxes in this. Yeah. But, and, and in, early information correlates with what we're seeing clinically in the mental health field, yes, and also in education, where the ones saddled with the kids daily are the teachers and the administrators, dealing with you know trying to drag those kids to try to catch up as far as all the grades and the academics and the reading, writing, everything else that they need to do. But perhaps part of the problem might that they are not uh, flourishing; uh, they're not growing is because um, maybe they're a little bit a bit warped. So how many years is it going to take? How, how much more study do we need? Because this is a great argument for not shutting down society next time we have a, you know, I know, yeah, well, I, look, I, mean, I know COVID it, killed it, a lot of people, but it was a mild uh, uh, pandemic compared to, you know, a, a zombie pandemic. You know, it's, there's no, there was no reason to shut everything down. Like, they kept schools open in Florida. Maybe those kids are healthier. Maybe that could be the control group compared to other places of the country well they're going to probably start looking at as you know now that just about everybody's had covid it's going to be hard to get control groups and stuff like that that's why these guys just happen to stumble on this because they had some previous information which i think is brilliant but you know again and i just kind of want to echo what you just said which i think is really perfectly said and that is you take kids out of society, put them in home. They don't socialize. They kind of make their own rules about how they're learning. They can kind of get up, mess around. They're not in a classroom. There's any structure. And then you put them back into 
schools and they're trying to catch up and get more, you know, you know, literature in, getting more math in, and they're coming from the habits that they developed and then coming back into that strict environment. It's enormous amounts of stress and they haven't socialized. So the frontal part of their brain hasn't developed the way it should. And you're just creating a situation of copious amounts of anxiety the inability to deal with the day-to-day activity, which creates a snafu of depression. And we don't know how that's going to spiral into downward mental health. Who has the resilience to recover from that? Uh, it's just, it leaves a lot of Can, question. And, and it really does bring the question, is it is it really better to put everybody in shelter or to walk through this? And of course, it depends on the organism, but this is the aftermath. Can I make a suggestion, Dr. Beebe? Dr. Brandon Bronk joining yeah. me from North Texas. I think now more than ever, I think moms and dads, doesn't matter if it's like preteen or teen, or your kids need to be involved in something. Your kids need to be taking music lessons, art class. They need to be in church. They need to be part of the Boys and Girls Club. They need to belong to a group, something. that You just can't have them just going to school and coming back. I, I think if you get them involved in something, I think that will be the salve. I think that might be something that helps cure this. What do you think? Well, I think the social integration is absolutely imperative. I mean, you think about it. So how many studies are there about, you know, too much screen time being terrible? How how many studies do you see where taking kids out of society is terrible? This is a combination of like 15 different things. And I agree with you. We have to have kids interacting in real world, not just through a computer screen. Yes, sir. Um, we have to have we have Chat to have kids room. learning from teachers where they can make eye contact and know you're there, and the teacher can you know surveil the room and find out who's really suffering, so they can go give that one kid some individual attention and allow kids to help each other and do group you know, all the stuff that everybody does in education that is a good educator. That stuff has been gone, and so. It's just been stressful on learning. And these kids know that they're behind and because now they're back yes. in it. Yep. And some cope and some don't. And we're finding that a lot of them are not. And it's creating enormous anxiety. And not just for kids, but for teachers and parents. Yeah, and that distraction, social media and the gaming and the little chat groups and gaming, and that's an escape. And that's a dangerous escape. No, kids need one-on-one human yeah. interaction. They need the drug. To be, yeah, absolutely. Well, Merry Christmas, Dr. Beebe. And happy 2023. Yeah. From North Texas, Dr. Brandon Brock. This is the Sergio Show. Let's get a let's get a check of inflation and how it's been affecting people. CPA and money manager Bill Dandy. We welcome him back to the show on uh, seven ten KURV. So, how has well first, what's the state of inflation right now, and how has it been affecting consumers? You know, inflation may be slowing down some, but it's still in excess of seven percent year over year. And that has an impact. In fact, you combine that over the past two years, we're seeing things like 20% higher than what they were two years ago. And for a lot of folks, they didn't see their paychecks go up by 20%. And so if they were already living pretty close to every dollar is already accounted for and things cost 20% more and we don't have 20% more to go around, people are starting to reexamine everything to determine can we still maintain our standard of living with less purchasing power or do we have to make a change in our lifestyle and you know changing lifestyle is a difficult thing and so people have gone to savings accounts they've gone maxed out credit cards they're doing other things but i think one of the wisest things some people are doing is re-examining their shopping habits to see if there might be some dollars that can be saved by shopping differently yeah especially with 
Christmas just uh, passing and everybody buying gifts and stuff, I'm sure, yeah, a lot of credit cards are maxed out and people dipped into savings for that, for sure. So going into the new year, 2023, uh, any any patterns popping up on, on spending habits for groceries, say? Yes, and the spending habits changes for groceries is astounding. Over 80% of the people surveyed in several surveys are saying they've changed their purchasing habits because of the higher inflation over the past couple of years. To get shoppers to change anything, I mean, there are sciences around how do you disrupt a shopper's behavior to get them to go from one store to another. And here, this inflation has been such a disruptive factor that over 80% say they're doing things differently. They may be going to the discount stores uh, instead of the main name stores or buying the discounted product. Uh, instead of buying the Cheerios, get the toasted O's. Take the Cheerio out, take the Cheerio out Cheerios. Does it taste the same? And, of course, some people say, no, it doesn't taste the same. It's not the same product. I don't like it. Others say, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's 90% of the bang for 50% of the buck. So, yeah, we're going to start doing something differently in our purchasing. And it is kind of experimental for until you figure out what will work for you and what will not. But uh, there are some strategies that makes sense that people might want to consider across the board. And, you know, some of these shopping strategies are things that you probably learned a long time ago, which is number one, don't go shopping hungry. I mean, make sure that you're well fed before you get to that grocery store and then know what you're going to buy and know that sometimes things are less expensive at one place because they put these things on sale, but other things are not. So know the prices before you go, have your list, stick to your list, and try substitutes if you're willing to do so. I think that could go a long way to allowing people to maintain their standard of living, even though things are costing more across the board. CPA and money manager Bill Dendy joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. We're talking about inflation and uh, shoppers changing their behaviors at the grocery store. Going into 2023 and considering the amount of debt we've racked up and, I mean, people in general, not the government, <laughs> but uh, just people spending habits for 2023. Any advice to recover from the, the Christmas holidays? Well, for a lot of people, they're going to discover that the cost of carrying debt is a lot more expensive than it was last year or the year before, or heck, any year for the last 20 years, because interest rates have gone up. So that variable interest debt has gone up quite a bit, and it's a good strategy to try to knock that down as quickly as possible. For some people, it means consolidating their debt. For others, it means that they're not going to uh, uh, plan on doing bankruptcy or or uh, they, they actually plan on paying that debt someday down the road. Uh, I've seen people borrow from their 401k plan, so they're paying back themselves. But it gets scary when you start taking money out of your retirement savings. But there are those saying, I've got to live today, so I have a chance to retire in the future. And so they're making those types of adjustments, uh, borrowing money for, basically for themselves and then paying back the interest back into that account as a way to manage the money. And there are others that are looking to uh, um, just be more diligent with every dollar they spend, getting back to the basics of budgeting. A lot of people just get complacent. I mean, it takes time to do the shopping and comparisons, and it takes time to figure out well, how, how much it costs to carry debt. And for many of us, we just haven't made the time to do it, and we got a little complacent, and these higher inflation rates and the higher cost of things has been the disruptive event that is a, 
cause us to go back to do something we probably should have been doing along the way, which is being diligent and making sure we're getting maximum benefit for each dollar spent. Uh, it's probably long-term positive for a lot of households to know, again, where do those dollars go every month? Uh, I think for uh, many people, they, they just they go along the way, and we know that we carry some cash around, and the rest of the money, if, when the checkbook goes to zero, we're out. But when we start looking at the expenses, oftentimes we'll find leakage, places we're spending money where we're not getting 100% of a benefit or enjoyment. We may find that we can trim down some packages uh, on entertainment that may not dramatically impact us. And it's things like this that are going to allow a lot of people to sustain their same lifestyle with less purchasing power because even though the cost of things are buying one up more than their salaries, they're able to spend less when they're diligent about their spending. Well, hopefully we can maintain that diligence in 2023 because, yeah, I, I got a little bit of debt, nothing that I can't pay off within a month or two, but still it's more than I'm comfortable with having. Bill Dendy, CPA and money manager, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. One in five Americans admit to doing the bare minimum and are less willing to engage in the hustle culture. Joining us on 710KURV, workplace expert, head of the Vested Group. Joel Patterson joins us on 710KURV. So why why are uh, so many Americans pulling back? Well, I think this is just a continuation of what's been going on the last few years, and it was somewhat inevitable, right? You go back to the pandemic, and, and there was lots and lots of talk about how productivity remained high when we were remote, but there was never really any conversation around how do we get new employees or people just coming out of college or – Anybody in the org, how do you indoctrinate them into what you do, how you do it, who you, what your culture is? And I think that, that part of that has, has really created this, this situation where there's some people, and there's always some of these people, but there's some people out there that are looking to do the absolute minimum that they can to get by. And, and there's some even that are taking that a step further and, and even having multiple jobs that are full-time jobs but doing the absolute minimum and, and to the point that, or to the extent that there's even a website out there that teaches you how to do things like keep your LinkedIn profiles in sync. And, you know, so, so there's just a lot of continued chaos going on in the, in the, uh, in the industry and in, in the workforce, I should say. And uh, this is just another one of those things that really reinforces that employers have to be intentional about how they interact with their employees, how they keep them engaged. All of those things are even more important than they ever were. Uh, otherwise, you're going to lose people, and, and, and we all know it's still difficult to find really good employees out there. So the best thing you can do is keep the, the really good ones that you've already got. Is there any data on the age range of these people that are doing the bare minimum? 
you know, it's funny because I'm looking for something similar, and I had it, but my sense is it's mostly kind of that you know 25 to 45 range where it's just a different perspective on work, what work is. Now I'm not I'm not saying that in a critical way because it's just different, and that just happens with every generation. But the the younger people that I work with now, they just view work in a in a, in a way that, that that I haven't traditionally done so, and and it's not bad. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about not wanting to be part of a hustle culture. Okay, fine. I understand not wanting to be paid for uh, or not be paid for work that you're doing, but the inverse is true as well. If you're there for 40 hours and being paid for 40 hours, you should put in your best effort. And that qu- the quiet quitting concept is really around not doing that. And, uh, and, and, you know, the reality is those people have always been, there's always been a subset of that. I think it's become easier for people to have that attitude. And, and I know when I work at home for a few days in a row, my, intensity kind of wanes and, and and it impacts me and so if i own my own business and it's and i'm having that it's it makes sense that some of the employees out there would have this a similar situation and it's just something to address joining us on 710k urv workplace expert joel patterson and we're talking about doing the bare minimum or quiet quitting and why so many people are less willing to engage in the hustle culture are you wouldn't happen to be familiar with the anti-work subreddit where people talk about basically this very thing uh quiet quitting and the reasons behind them doing the quiet quitting a lot of it has to do at least in in their case of not being recognized for some of the efforts that they put in when they go above and beyond and how how do you maintain that balance between employers and employees in just keeping everybody motivated and incentivized to go above and beyond yeah, unfortunately, I am familiar with that subreddit and have spent quite a bit of time just kind of reviewing it. It, 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 it tends to get me a little wound up at times because that is the minority. I really believe that that is the minority of those people that are out there that are constantly upset with how they're being treated. There, that, it's clear that there are people that, that those situations exist, but I think it's less and less as the years progress because, you know, having most people quit their job because of their boss, not because of what they do. And those days of yelling at your employees or just ridiculing them in any way, you know, that's, you can't really do that anymore and, and keep people. And so those people are, are, are moving out, but it doesn't change the fact that, that you know, it's going to leave a, a gap. Somebody's got to step in and be able to recognize, all right, this is a problem. How do we change the tide here? How do we get them engaged? You know, engagement is one of those things that you can measure it, but it's very, very soft. You know, and, and it's, it's really about how much people really have passion, how much they, 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 um, the productivity remains in their role. Uh, and so really being able to find ways to, to increase that isn't that difficult. I mean, really, at the end, all you've got to do is spend five minutes a day as a, as a boss, spend five minutes a day being intentional about touching base with somebody. And if you do that every day, you'll have an impact. But a lot of people that are remote, they're just not getting that interaction. And so you've got to find different ways to, to it's going to be different for every organization, but you've got to find a way to be able to stay uh, in touch with them face to face, knowing that you're not going to get that social interaction you're used to when we were all in the office together. So just like a five minute, not necessarily a meeting, like, okay, here's all the stuff that we got to do, but Hey, you know, just checking in, this is what we've got coming up and just getting kind of a status update on, on how you're doing, how things are coming along. Yeah, definitely not a meeting. I mean, that would be the opposite. I think <laughs> they, hey, you have five minutes to jump on a Zoom call 
and and just you know we're just touching base and just you know you might surprise them they might be nervous at first thinking that they're about to get fired or something because you haven't done that in the past but but you'll be surprised at the result of that you just say hey i don't want anything i'm just touching base to make sure you're doing okay uh you know, I, you know maybe you can bring up something that's going on in their lives doesn't it's just yeah it's just treating them like a person and treating them like how you would want to be treated and those little moments really have an impact on people long term now the, the the flip side of that is you have to be consistent about these things if you just feel like you're oh i got a problem right now and i'm just fixing that and you do it once and you're done that's almost doubly bad you've got to be consistent about reaching out and and again it doesn't have to take a long time and it doesn't have to be formal uh, it'll make all the difference for you. Workplace expert Joel Patterson joining us on News Talk 710 KURE. Any other tips for employers in um, managing and recognizing those workers that are doing the bare minimum and what they can do to, I guess, snap them out of it? You know, I think the, the biggest thing that employers can do is, is, is really it's in the hiring process and making sure you get the right people. I'm always asked, what is, the, what is the number one thing you look for in people? And, and it's an easy answer. and It's always a growth mindset. If you have people around that are always looking for ways to contribute, if they're looking for ways to learn and grow, then it really doesn't matter what kind of business you have them in. They're going to do okay. And so look for those people that, that uh, demonstrate those kind of traits and really invest in them and, 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 and make sure that you're understanding that they want more because they're going to be bored and you're going to lose them. So, so, so find those, those people and find unique ways to touch base with them. And, uh, yeah, it's really as simple as that. People want to overcomplicate it, but just start with the basics and, and it'll go further than you realize. I'm guessing a pizza party is not on that list then. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to talk about a ping pong table and things. And, and, yeah, that's great. That's not why people take a job, though, right? I mean, it's really more about the relationships and, and, and what the job is. So those, those little benefits, I'm not saying you shouldn't do them. If, if it works for your culture, then by all means. But don't think that that's going to change your attrition rate. Uh, people actually get more upset about that. So it's really just about that personal touch and making sure people are okay that will make a difference, more so than a, a, a big screen TV in the break room. Joel, thank you so much for your wisdom. We appreciate it. Workplace expert Joel Patterson joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday mornings starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We'll let you know I enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday mornings starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Let's take a look at some of the legal stories making headlines this week with Andrew Reed, Associated Karstens, Allen, and Gourley, LLP. Number one is an Idaho professor suing a TikToker over allegations in the killing of four university students. Oh, I got big questions about this concept. But first, what, what, what happened? What's the story? <laughs> so this TikTok influencer had who's a self-proclaimed, according to the report, psychic, has claimed to know that this professor has knowledge and was involved both in 
involved in murder and as well as a relationship with one of the murdered students at this university. From all the reports we've seen, the police are saying there's no connection there. And this, so this professor has reached out via her attorneys and said, you need to cease and desist. This is causing damage to my reputation. Well, this TikToker then took it a step further and took those cease and desist layers and actually made video including them. So it's one now there's a lawsuit pending against the TikToker for defamation. So this is where my questions started coming into play. So now that everybody has this uh, broadcasting entity inside of their back pocket where they can say basically whatever they want about whoever they want, uh, at what point is it crossing the line to say these things and what what tools do you actually have like what's the 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 proper process for um checking these people (laughs) legally what what options do you have (laughs) the so the big thing is um in order for you to stand on first amendment rights one of the big things is whatever you're saying has to be either known that you're making it as your opinion and you're not stating that it's a fact and then know that the statement isn't false um, that's one of the big things, especially in defamation. You've got one of the key factors is, is a statement false and is it made in a public manner? So putting it out on TikTok, especially if you have thousands of followers and then get millions of views of the video, that's where you can definitely run into some issues. So somebody on TikTok says, hey, you know, so-and-so eats babies. And you take this whole thing to court. So what? How do you how do you prove the case in in one way or another? How do you get rid of all this? So some of the other factors that have to be proven up in a court case for so in order for this professor to win, they're gonna have to show that a that these were damaging to the professor. So these statements and these videos were damaging both reputation as well as usually you have to show there's some type of monetary damages or something along the lines of it's damaging your reputation to the point you won't be able to, for example, move jobs or something like that because this is going to create such an issue for you. So those are some of the issues that can come up and will have to be proven here in order for the professor to win. But from what we have seen so far and based on the reports, there it's one, at least right now, it seems like the things are on the side of the professor. But in, in the case uh, that, I, that I brought up, so-and-so says that so-and-so, like a TikToker says, so-and-so eats babies. Do I have to prove in court that I don't eat babies? <laughs> it's one, you just have to prove that they knew the statement was false. So it's one, arguably, you can't, it's almost impossible to prove a negative. But it's one, it's one you can also be sure that you just make sure that what they are saying can show that it was false. Um in your scenario, that one's a little more difficult to prove, um, but taking it back to the facts in this case, one of the things that I know one of the reports that looked at involving in this case was that the professor in question was actually across um, the country, from my understanding, when all of this, all these situations were occurring. So it's one couldn't have even been in remotely um, involved in the actual, as it's stated, on these videos in the murders themselves. So that's one of the things that was brought up is that based on that information, it's very difficult. So it's one that most likely would would be considered a false statement for sure. 
We're, we're talking with Andrew Reed about some of the the legal topics this week, uh, the legal stories that are that are trending. I know we spent a lot on that one, but I mean this this whole thing about everybody saying things on TikTok and claiming you know X Y and Z cancel culture just in general. I had a lot of legal questions about that. The the next story has to do with the Girl Scout mom that was kicked out of Radio City and barred from seeing the rockets after they used facial recognition technology on her. What's that about? So this one is intriguing. So the mom in question is actually an attorney, and she is um, with a firm that actually sued the owners of Radio City Music Hall um, with regards to a their liquor license and some issues involving that. And so one thing that here recently, according to the reports that the owners had of racing music hall have done is they have gone in and said, if you are an attorney and you sue us for any reason, whether it's injury or anything else, we are going to ban you from our facilities until that case is resolved. Um, and they've, uh, according to reports have put out multiple letters to anyone that's sued, sued them and the firms in question, the attorney saying, just putting you on your own notice, you will not be allowed in our facilities. Well, this attorney is part of a firm that had recently sued. And unfortunately, using facial recognition, they security found her as she was entering and said, you are not welcome here. So I guess facial technology, facial recognition technology aside, is this the standard operating procedure for cases like this in general? It's one, I, I would say from my experience and my knowledge, um, this would not be kind of standard operating procedure at most facilities. Um, there are obvious, there can be exceptions to that. One of the interesting notes that is involved in this case is if the this situation had been in another state, um, there's actually some states that actually restrict the use of facial recognition technology. And in some cases, for instances like this, it would actually have been illegal for it to be used in this manner. So with that in question, that brings up some even more issues and makes it where it's one of those, It's this really is a developing area of the law because there are certain states that have been very proactive about maintaining privacy for individuals with regards to facial recognition. But at the same time, there are some places, for example, New York, that essentially at the current moment, from my understanding, based on reports, is that it's freely used. There's no real restrictions to it. What about for cases where, say, I'm, I'm, I pay security and I give them a list of, of people on a, on a supposed blacklist? Hey, listen, we're, we're up against some litigation right now. These are the key people. Don't let them in. Is, is that the same thing? Um, essentially, that's what this same scenario that has happened here. They, um, from the reports of my understanding, they have a security team in place and they were told the attorneys from these law firms are not welcome at our facilities. And that's essentially what has happened. But but I, I guess what I'm getting at is legally, in the eyes of the law, does it matter if a human facially recognizes somebody versus a computer? Um, so in that case, it's one there there is some difference because they, from my understanding, it's one you can if you are a private owner of a facility, you can block people from attending in certain situations. Now it's one. State by state, there are some rules and regulations. Um, my understanding is some states do allow for you to 
prevent the certain individuals from attending. Um, certain states do say if it's a public venue, so if you have it's completely open to the public, then that puts some other restrictions of how how you can block and what the circumstances are. You can block somebody from entering. And again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, um, certain states do block facial recognition. So it's one, whether it's a human or a computer that's doing it, it's all going to come down to each state's individual laws. Fascinating stuff. Hey, thanks for taking the time to break everything down for us. Andrew Reed, associate at Karsten's Alley and Gourley, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show. Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. There's been a lot of neat discussions over what the workplace should look like as we move into the future past COVID. You have remote work, you have people wanting to go back to the office, you have this hybrid thing going on. But it also raises a few really relevant questions about how much time should actually be dedicated to working. You get 24 hours in a day, eight of those are spent at work, eight of those are spent to sleep, and basically everything else is used to run errands and do maintenance on the house and not really spend a whole lot of time with family and things like that. Joining us on 710 KURV, business strategist, productivity hacker, and author of the just-released book, The Vacation Effect. Denise Gosnell joins us on News Talk 710 KURV. So improving the work-life balance in the new year, where should we start? Hey, Zach, thank you for having me. You know, it's a great question on where to start. I think the first thing is for people to realize that your to-do list is never going to be empty, right? Like at the end of each day, there's always going to be more on the list than what you had time to do. That's because you have a job. That's because you have a company. Like as long as it's in business, there's always going to be more to get done than what you can get in a day. And it becomes an addictive cycle that we have to realize that, you know, there's always going to be more. So it's easy to get stuck in that hustle and grind mentality and never actually take a moment to breathe and focus on whether we're being busy or whether we're actually being productive. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of putting it. And I guess uh, what are some good ways to just kind of separate everything and take everything piecemeal and start eliminating things piece by piece? What what kind of method do you have? Methodology? Yeah. So one of the methodologies that transformed my own life, I have three different companies, Zach, in three different industries. And I used to work 80 hours a week running those three companies. And now I work an average of three days per week or 30 to 35 hours a week running those same companies. And what I had to first do, and I also helped my clients do, was to realize that you have to, if left to our own devices, there's this thing called Parkinson's law, the time that it takes to complete a project fills to expand to the amount of time you allow yourself to do it. You know, like you give yourself a day to complete something, you'll figure out how to do it in a day. But if you give yourself a week to do it, it'll take you a week to do it. So what you have to actually recognize is that it's, it's important to put a limit on the amount of time you're willing to work. 
and it actually forces you to not waste time and to be productive versus busy. So that's step one is to be willing to limit the amount of time you're willing to work and instead of be like, oh, well, I'll get to that this evening or I'll get to that this weekend like so many of us do and I used to be guilty of it as well. <laughs> it's really, really easy to do that. Full, fully, mm-hmm. uh, full admission here, I am absolutely guilty of doing that. But um, I guess what are some good ways to to stop? You know what? Yeah, I got a I got a better question. As how do you break up the day? Right? Like you, we hear about thing like like uh, what's his name? Elon Musk breaking everything up into five minute chunks of the day. Some people that think that's kind of an extreme. They'll say, hey, maybe twenty minute chunks is a little bit more reasonable. Thirty minute chunks. What? Uh, how, how do you take on each day every twenty four hour period? Yeah, so I have certain days of the week that I I will do meetings and certain time blocks within those days that I'll do meetings and I don't allow any meetings to creep onto my schedule other other days of the week or doing those windows and I have a lot of focused blocks. So it's like really chunking your time in terms of not jumping around where you've got meetings all day long, you know, only an hour to focus and then another meeting and then 20 minutes to focus and then another meeting. That's just not productive. It's like people need to really take a hard look at their calendars and see how they can rearrange their schedules to put rules in place where they have large chunks of focus time versus large chunks of meeting time. That was one of the first things I did that really started transforming my schedule into allowing me to be more productive. Because as you know, it's hard to be productive if you're jumping around all the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. We're, we're joined by Denise Gosnell, who is a business strategist and author of the just released book, The Vacation Effect. And we're looking at improving the work-life balance in, in 2023. So you're a you're a business so say you're a business owner and you're looking into this and you kind of want to kind of set the standard for the, for the rest of the employees because we I mean we've been talking about this work life balance and we've been talking about remote work and we've been talking about coming back into the office and people are talking about four day work weeks and uh, how do you how do you assess how much time your employees need to spend in in the workplace if you're a business owner Yeah so it starts with the business owner needing to recognize that they themselves should not be working all the time. It sets a bad example. It sets the expectation to your employees that you're expecting them to overwork instead of thinking smart, you know, working smarter instead of harder. You know, if you're, you want to create a culture where your employees are rewarded for their results, not the time it took them to get the results. If they can get the same results with better ideas, with better ingenuities, you know, innovations in the workplace, they should be rewarded for that. You as the business owner are rewarded for that. So I think it starts with creating this culture of focusing on results instead of the time spent. You want to encourage people to not be micromanaged and punching a time clock all the time, but to be always looking for the needle movers and, and you know, the things that are actually going to make a difference and ignoring and eliminating all the stuff that's just fluff and filling our day. Well, what, you may have heard of the anti-work movement and the quiet quitting people. Uh, what's the difference between managing your time better, taking it taking it a little uh, easier on yourself and the the bare minimum type people that we've been hearing about. Yeah, so you know the, the there's the, there's a big difference between you know doing the bare minimum to just get by and not get fired versus actually being willing to limit the amount of time that you're willing to work so that you can focus yourself on being productive because I don't know about you Zach, but have you ever noticed that right before you go on vacation, you get a ton worth of work done in the two days before you leave. And you're like, you're like, man, I wish I could be that productive all the time. Well, what's happening there 
is that you're eliminating or delegating the stuff that doesn't really matter, but you're focusing on the few things that really does matter. So what if people were to limit their work week and say like, you know what, I'm only going to work 40 hours a week. This is a full-time job. I'm only going to work 40 or I'm only going to work 35 or whatever, you know, your agreement is with your employer. Or if you're a business owner, what if you say, you know what, if I can't get it done in 40 hours, I'm probably just wasting time. Because what happens is it forces you to focus on what really matters, those need movers and to cut out all the BS that you shouldn't probably be doing anyway. And but it's a cultural problem. We have to recognize that there's always going to be more on your to-do list. And until you force yourself to start analyzing it and heaven forbid, do critical thinking around what's worth doing and what's not, our culture will never change. Denise Gosnell is a business strategist and author of the book, The Vacation Effect. Tell us what's in the book. Yeah, so the book is basically my whole process and journey I went through to go from being a workaholic business owner running three companies in three industries to going to a three-day work week myself and how I teach other business owners that they could do the same thing or will create their own version of whatever schedule they want to have. Maybe it's not a three-day work week. Maybe they just want weekends free again, or maybe they want a four-day work week. But it teaches you how to get clear on what, what you really want, how to then do an experiment for 30 days to really identify all the all the bottlenecks and the what you would, and then what you need to optimize in phase three and how to actually go about doing that. Where can we, where can we uh, wanna, pick up a cup? So, Hello? That's exactly what you're asking me. I'm sorry for cutting you off. So if they want to learn <laughs> more about that, they can get details at vacationeffectbook.com. Hey, thanks a lot for imparting some of your business wisdom upon us. That's Denise Gosnell, business strategist, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show.